in November and December of 2011, and then again in January 2012, I took those three hours in nightlight to offer an overview of a message that was coming from a New Jersey messianic rabbi named Jonathan Kahn. This was several months before his name and his message became far more widely known. I explained in those studies that I was convinced that God had given Rabbi Khan a direct revelation concerning our nation, our times, and the very fact of his being a Jew and a voice to the Gentile church was to me another sign that we were entering into a new day in which the one new man Paul spoke of in Ephesians and Romans is emerging. And that again, as Paul prophesied, this coming together of Jewish and Gentile people of God would be life for the world. I am still now even more convinced of those facts. My concern now is that I continually engage conversation with people who either have not heard the revelation from Rabbi Khan or worse, have heard part of it, but have allowed it to be placed on the mental shelf with all the other mental stack of stuff where it lays unheeded. Not long after 9-11, I heard an FBI agent speaking on what he considered to be our most dangerous issue regarding national security. He said, and what he said made perfect sense, our greatest danger is not another 9-11 or anthrax or nuclear bombs hidden in downtown cities. Our greatest danger is too much information pouring in with no filter to determine what is and is not important. Well, that's my concern now. I want to humbly but loudly insist that you take time to focus on what I want to share this hour. It's not original with me. I'm only a messenger boy. It's not original with Rabbi Khan, who would be the first to tell you that. Regardless of the mind-numbing criticisms that seem to always arise from certain Christian quarters, claiming that Rabbi Khan is just another religious huckster trying to sell some books, I can all reassure that Rabbi Khan probably was not able to arrange the flow of historical events, the ancient signs, the positioning of the nations or the sun and the moon and the fingerprints of God on history all on his own so that he could make a few bucks on Amazon.com. When The Passion of the Christ came out on video, I remember the mixed feelings I had when I saw it on the shelf along with other new video releases in our local DVD rental store. On the one hand, there was the gospel, presented in a form that might reach many who would never have paid any attention any other way. I say this with the understanding that some may not have appreciated the film and its graphic, maybe possibly over-the-top violence. Still, the gospel is there. Yet at the same time, I also felt the sick sorrow of seeing the subject of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ stuck up on the display shelf of a local video store propped up between an anniversary release of Back to the Future and the most recent James Bond episode. Just another DVD, just another new release. And I wondered if its commonplace accessibility and availability might be the very thing that would drown out its presence 
and hide it away in plain sight. I have that same concern now with the message of the Harbinger by Rabbi Khan. If you're unfamiliar with it, you can go to our webpage, click on to Nightlight Archives, and listen to the three-hour addresses that I cited previously. If you are a new listener, or if you maybe have forgotten what you heard back when they were first recorded, just scroll down to Nightlight Numbers 222. 223 and 224, recorded in November, December of 2011 and January 2012. This was the three-hour introduction to the message Rabbi Khan called the Harbinger. I won't take the time to review any of that here, but if after you have listened, then go further and obtain the book and or the CD messages from Rabbi Khan, whose contact information is now easily accessible on the web. You don't have to hear these messages in order to gain from this one today, but I would ask you to do your homework on both the Harbinger and this present message. What I offer here is a Reader's Digest or Cliff Notes version of the full message, and I'm doing this in hopes that I can bring the book off the video shelf of the public display where it may have been hidden in plain sight. Maybe I can turn up the volume place the screen in our line of sight, and help us see and hear what might have eluded us till now, since Rabbi Khan could not possibly have manipulated this information if he had wanted to, since it can only have come from an omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient source. It is, in my opinion, utter insanity to fail to listen and heed what it has to say to us both corporately and individually. I hope to give enough here to satisfy that deficit and to move us into a better understanding and hopefully motivate you into your own study and research. Now let's go to the mystery of the Shemitah. During the dark days of the aftermath of 9-11, While thousands of New Yorkers were still in the grip of shock and the rest of the country was just beginning to get over its initial but false spiritual awakening, a messianic rabbi across the river from the still-smoking ruins of Ground Zero was directed by the Lord to go walk the area and prayerfully listen. What resulted from that prayerful encounter has come to us in the form of a series of messages by Rabbi Khan called the Harbinger. A Harbinger is a symbolic event which portends a coming greater event. The message in 9-11 was not the event itself, but it was a harbinger of things to come if America and the West does not repent. The nine harbingers have been explained both by Rabbi Khan in his book and in our previous Nightlight messages which I referred to already. So we'll not restate in great detail all of them here, but for clarity's sake, we will need to revisit the scripture that is the basis for the entire message. Isaiah chapter 9 takes place at the time when the Assyrians are on the borders of Israel. Those borders have been kept safe by the grace and protection of God, even though the nation is willfully turning from him and not only turning away, but embracing all the practices of the pagans. As a harbinger of worse things to come, if this evil continues, the Assyrians breached the borders of Israel. 
verse 10 describes the damage that was done by the words expressed in the mouths of unrepentant, prideful, and arrogant Israel. The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stone. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. What would follow Rabbi Khan's Holy Spirit-directed revelation of how these verses relate to 9-11 and America is a continuing unfolding saga of parallels between Israel and the United States, both countries founded by direct divine grace, both raised up as lights to the world, both blessed beyond human ability to take credit for the blessings, both gradually forgetting the source of their prosperity, both warned by prophets whom they ignore. And with the breach of our borders at 9-11, both became a nation hanging in the balance. Israel's fate was not sealed by the original breach. The harbinger was just that, a warning. The warnings are not given if there's no hope. But Israel not only refused the warning, but arrogantly defied the God who sent it. Verse 9 says, Israel spoke of rebuilding and replanting, quote, in the pride and arrogance of their hearts. So what was at first a portent, a few years later became total judgment, as the Assyrians returned and completely destroyed Israel. The parallels between America and Israel are thankfully not complete yet. But only the most arrogant and self-deceived will refuse to see that the previous parallels certainly portend either a turning back to God or another fulfillment of the judgment of Isaiah chapter 9. This was painfully true 14 years ago and is more so now. We have not heeded. We have not turned. And worse, we are more arrogant and more pagan and more rebellious and blasphemous than ever. And the sand in our hourglass is almost gone. Thankfully, as always, there is a righteous remnant that is seeking God. And how that will work out in the milieu of this whole historic event remains to be seen. But for now, rather than taking time to placate our comfort with the idea that there is a a remnant that will survive and thrive, let's just look at the facts and at the nation as a whole, and where the nation stands in light of that fact. If God wanted to be sure that we were getting the point, that the events of 9-11 had a historical precedent in Israel's history, and if he wanted to be sure we understood that, what might he do? Well, maybe he would have the various government officials who would actually make direct references to the very verse of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10. That in itself might suggest divine intervention since we as a nation are no longer in the habit of making references to the Word of God at any time, unless, of course, when it might be politically expedient for the speaker to do so. And so it was that the day after 9-11, the then leader of the Senate, Tom Daschle, stood in the well of the Senate and quoted Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10. That he did not read it in context seems obvious, or he would not have chosen that verse. Or maybe he did read it in context and chose to ignore 
the context and the warning it contained. Or worse still, maybe he read it in context and agreed with the spirit of the original rebels against God who spoke it. But whatever was in his mind at that time, which only God knows, God ordained that it should be stated by the Senate Majority Leader and then repeatedly over the next few years by the President and various other officials who would quote, The bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The sycamores have been uprooted, but we will replace them with cedars. No one seems to notice that it was not a statement of faith in God, but it was a statement of faith in man. It's a statement of defiance and was referred to several times as being a statement of defiance. We will defy and rebuild. Some might say, well, yes, we defy our enemies, but that's the point. It may be spoken of as defiance toward our enemies, but when Almighty God is allowing things to happen that are harbingers of coming judgment because we have turned against him and actually not only turned against him, but declared war on him, then to claim that we are defying our enemies is actually a defiance of God. No, God is not on the side of our enemies. God is not on anybody's side God is God. The question is not whether God is on our enemy's side. It's whether we are on God's side. This was the first harbinger, the breaching of our borders with violence. The collapse of our bricks was the second. But there was a third. Who could have ever thought that the only tree on the property of Ground Zero was a sycamore? And that sycamore, which was struck by a flying piece of metal in the collapsing tower, had to be uprooted. And what was it replaced with? A cedar tree. And not only any cedar, but the very cedar referred to in Isaiah 9.10, an Erez tree. This cedar, this Erez tree, was set in place with much ceremony and declared to be the tree of hope. And that was its official designation from then on. So where are we in the unfolding of the progressive warnings of the harbingers? Well, that cedar tree, that tree of hope, which meant was meant to represent the hope of recovery. After much care and feeding and after much tending and nurturing has died and has been uprooted. If we see the harbingers as progressive warnings, then this certainly should be an ominous measure of how God views America's condition. If Jesus cursed the fruitless fig tree, which is a symbol of Israel in its fruitlessness, what is he saying to America? Cedars are notoriously easy to care for and don't require much attention unless they have been rooted in cursed ground. The sycamore was destroyed in the blast, but it stood as a shield to St. Paul's Chapel, the only building on ground zero that survived. What was St. Paul's? Well, it was the chapel where, on April 30th, 1789, the first president of the United States joined with the entire new government in prayer and publicly decreed that should this country fail in its humility before God, The blessings of the country would surely fail also. 
This was the beginning of the nation in covenant humility before God, never mind the obvious failings and stumblings that would follow in our history, which all nations have to some degree or other. God took that covenant seriously and blessed America beyond any nation before it. We became a nation of national immigrants, all coming here to take advantage of the freedom which would be generated and the greatest prosperity ever known to man. Poles and Germans and Irish and Africans and people of all the world came to America not to become self-centered identity politicians who would tear the country to pieces, but Americans. People from all over the world and all walks of life and all races came to take advantage of the freedom which would generate the greatest prosperity known to man. America became the vanguard of enterprise, invention, innovation, and most of all, freedom. And no nation before us except Israel had ever given national corporate honor to God as the source of our fruitfulness. By the end of World War II, America became the protector of nations. Those who love to deny that fact cannot give one piece of evidence of anyone trying to come to the shores of any other nation or to look to any other nation in times of world crisis as the world came to look to America. That is no pat on America's back as if American exceptionalism was the the product of American character. American exceptionalism is only exceptional because it has an exceptional history of relationship to God. Why would America be allowed such honor? Only because it was functioning as the creator and judge of the nations intended it to function, as a guardian of hope and a protector of freedom and a punisher of tyranny. When the time came for the return of Israel to its lost inheritance, it was this same America which, established by the sovereignty of God, stood and paved the way and protected the process of the rebirth of Israel. Vitally important historic events began to reveal a pattern in Rabbi Khan's ongoing journey through the background story of 9-11. He noticed, for instance, that the attack on the towers had taken place on a great day of importance in the Jewish calendar. That day was the 29th of Elul, known among rabbis as the Shemitah. This is taken from Leviticus chapter 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 15 and establishes a pattern of sevens. Just as the seventh day is the Sabbath of a six-day week, so every seven years would be a Sabbath of years, the seventh year being the year of the Shemitah. This Shemitah year would begin on Rosh Hashanah and end on the 29th day of Elul, Since the Jewish calendar is lunar and not Gregorian, the days vary from year to year, but the designation of the beginning of the Shemitah and its closing day are always the same, Rosh Hashanah to Elul 29. For us, this would be a date in September to a date in the following September, with the exact day changing from year to year depending on the lunar cycle. This is why, for instance, Easter is always at a different time of year each year. The purpose for the Shemitah year was the same as the purpose for the Sabbath in a week. The weekly Sabbath is to remind us of the eternal, to rest from our labors, remind us our source is in God and not in the works of our hands. 
This is celebrated even more pronouncedly by the Sabbath of years in the Shemitah. So what does Shemitah mean? The word in Hebrew means to release or to allow to go free or to allow to collapse or to leave something to itself. In the context of blessing, it would refer to the fact that the time of the Shemitah is a year of allowing the fields to rest, to go to themselves, to be released, and for those who work that land to do the same, to rest, to let go, to remember who their source is and humble themselves before him and not trust in the works of their hands. So then what does the Shemitah mean for those who refuse to keep it, who refuse to release their grip, who think that the works of their hands are God? Well, the exact same Shemitah which was meant for release and blessing becomes the release of a curse. Instead of being released from the burden of work, God releases his grip on the nation, allows its enterprises to collapse and fall, and gives them over to their own devices. Rabbi Khan began to see a dramatic pattern. He had already noted that 9-11 occurred in a Shemitah year. But the following Monday after Ground Zero, the stock market collapsed. Up till then, the worst collapse in history, and the date on the Jewish calendar was Elul 29. The market rose during the coming six years, but on the following Shemitah year, it began to fall. On September 13, 2007, the market took a plunge, and on September 29th, which was Elul 29, the final day of the Shemitah, called in Jewish literature the day of nullification, the day when debts are nullified or when grace is nullified, the market suffered an even worse collapse than seven years before, making it the worst in financial history to date. It occurred exactly to the day the hour, the minute, and the second, in line with the Shemitah. Notice that there is a crescendo of severity of judgment that parallels the absence of repentance. Like birth pangs, that severity increases and crescendos from the first collapse to the second and increases in the fall. Now we are in the next Shemitah year, which began on Rosh Hashanah in September and will end on Elul 29, which on our current calendar this year is September 13th. God doesn't have to do anything according to a prescribed pattern, even if he is the one who set it in motion. As the wise centaur in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle said, he is not the servant of the stars, but their maker. But he has set the patterns of the seasons as well as the planets for signs and seasons. And there's not adequate time here for me to take us through the amazing patterns of the Shemitah years of past history that directly affect the rise and fall of nations, of economies, and of world-altering events. This is the part of your own homework I hope you will pursue. But what was at first thought only to be one of the nine harbingers, that of the Shemitah year related to 9-11, turns out to be that the Shemitah is itself the full backdrop of history, which the other harbingers fit into. The patterns of the Shemitah show the awesome, overarching, sovereign rule of Almighty God over all of history all time and space, all nations and peoples, all political plans of men, and reveals the mystery of how our free will choices 
only serve to fulfill the preordained, unalterable purposes of a sovereign, all-knowing, and good God who can give man such freedom while at the same time never losing control over his own predetermined will and purpose. The patterns of seven of the Shemitah are referred to in Daniel chapter 9 in what is commonly referred to as Daniel's 70th week. This takes the Shemitah reality out of the context of mere Jewish economy and reveals it as the cosmic score which the symphony of the universe has to answer to, right down to the first and second comings of Messiah to earth. So it is no wonder that to study the patterns of the Shemitah, the rising and falling, the blessing and cursing of nations, is to study everything from the rise of America's first colonies to the fall of Great Britain, the collapse of the old European powers, the rise of Nazism, the ascendancy of the democracies, the return of Israel to its homeland, the decline of America, the ascendancy of the Eastern powers, manifested in their now hosting the highest towers on earth, exceeding and surpassing America. All this under the shadow of the Shemitah. Let's talk for a moment about the towers themselves. The Hebrew language is divinely constructed to carry layers of meaning which complement the surface meaning of a text. When it comes to our present subject of the Shemitah and 9-11, we have a perfect example. Shemitah, remember, means to release or to allow to collapse. Collapse being related to a judgment upon prideful arrogance. Genesis chapter 11 verse 4 describes the first and most pronounced example of the level of arrogance against God in the story of the Tower of Babel when Nimrod, a type of Antichrist, and the first city builder, leads the people to build the first such tower in history when he leads them to say, let us build for ourselves a tower. In other words, let us declare our defiance against the heavens by invading the heavens with the works of our own hands. The word for tower in Hebrew is migdal and is also the word for increase, to lift up, to wax great, to enlarge, etc. You get the idea. The word for arrogance as seen in the 9-11 verse of Isaiah 9-10 is gadel, Do you hear the kinship of the word Godel to Migdal? Then the word for tower raised up in arrogant defiance is Gadal. So Migdal is tower, Godel is arrogance, Gadal a tower of arrogance. So strong is the relation in Hebrew to the building of towers and the materialistic spirit of godless arrogance so clearly displayed by both ancient Babel and modern Babylon, that when the Jewish translators of the Septuagint, that is the Greek version of the Jewish scriptures, came to translate Isaiah chapter 9 verse 10, they translated the phrase, let us build for ourselves a tower. They saw clearly the direct correlation and did not hesitate to incorporate the phrase of Genesis chapter 11 verse 4, the Tower of Babel, into the translation of Isaiah 9.10. 
this declaration, we shall rebuild, we shall exalt ourselves in the face of this judgment and in defiance, we shall rise up again, stronger than before, was stated and restated and repeated again and again in various forms all during the year of the Shemitah and beyond. Just one glaring example comes from the words of the poet who was invited to recite at the second inauguration of Obama. He stated that we should give thanks to the works of our hands, which completed the last floor of the Freedom Tower as it juts into the sky, yielding to our resilience. When Obama spoke back at the beginning of the rebuilding site of Ground Zero at the Freedom Tower, he placed in the Freedom Tower's foundation uh, a signature on a steel beam which was laid into the building structure. He wrote the words, We remember, we rebuild, we come back stronger. A clear paraphrase of the words from Isaiah, which he also quoted on other occasions, as have other dignitaries when making public speeches related to the tower. Let us keep in mind as we examine these facts of the nature of of signs, how they have a progression in them, leading somewhere beyond themselves. To where? Well, based on the nature of the continued arrogance, it doesn't look promising that it will lead to anything but judgment to come. The breach only continues now at our borders. The tree of hope is dead. The official speeches purposefully exclude God in every way possible. The towers are fallen. So what of this rebuilt tower now? Can't we say that it is the one positive, the one triumph in the face of the other negative coincidences? Well, Rabbi Khan tells of being contacted by a man in his area who felt an urgency to tell his story to the rabbi. He reports having had a vivid dream two days before the 9-11 Ground Zero event, in which he saw an angel pointing to the towers. Then they collapsed. When the actual event occurred, he was obviously troubled with questions like we all would be of what should he have done, what information should he have passed on, etc., but as time passed, he went on with his life and continued to pray about the issue. He had another dream, this more recent. He saw a single tower which is now standing in the place of Ground Zero. And it is the physical manifestation of the defiant, prideful stance taken by the officials of this country against God. In the dream, he heard the Lord say, Now they have completed it. This is the very fulfillment of their vow of defiance. There was a sense of completion, of finality, that the die is now cast for the Godel, the arrogant, Gadal, the tower, to encounter its Shemitah, its collapse. Now, does that mean there's going to be another 9-11 exactly like the first? Well, probably, of course not. It may mean something far more shaking to the nation. Remember, if the events of 9-11 were harbingers of things to come, apart from repentance, then the horror of that day was only a shadow of what it harbingers. 
Remember we referred to the date of April 30th. In April 30th, 1789, George Washington and our first government prayed on the very spot at Ground Zero where the sycamore had been planted. On that spot, our nation was set apart to God and his blessings were requested with the awareness of those gathered that we as a nation must heed the warning that once we depart from God, if we do, the blessing then became a curse. Well, it was on that same date, April 30th, In 1931, that America manifested its greatest tower, the building at that time, the Empire State Building, was the tallest building in the world. From the year 1870 until 1930, America manifested its ascending material power and wealth above all other nations in the rising skyline of New York City as the skyscraper capital of the world raised up tower after tower, with the capstone being the Empire State Building. It was on nearly the same date, April 29th, 2006, that the Freedom Tower was set to reach its goal of exceeding the Empire State Building, but they were unable to complete the final raising of the spire due to high winds. It would be another two weeks' delay, before the celebration of finally achieving their goal would be reached, and finally in their eyes the triumph would be completed, the building itself, though still being worked on. But the height had been restored as the building exceeded the Empire State Building and the New York skyline was once again carrying the signature of their dominion. But far above that skyline, high above this tallest of buildings in the Western Hemisphere, the work of our hands, there was over New York City a solar eclipse. The rabbis taught that when there is an eclipse of the moon, it is an omen of judgment on Israel. When there is an eclipse of the sun, it is a warning of judgment on the pagan nations who worship idols. Though rabbinical teaching cannot be held as high as scripture, there are several clear scriptures which relate the sun, the moon, and the signs of the heavens with judgments. And yes, eclipses are natural reoccurring phenomena that can be understood, explained, and measured. That's all very true. But can the timing and the significant relationship to otherwise non-related events be repeatedly passed off so easily? A wise person would not think so. One year later, on the anniversary of this day of the crowning of the tower, there was another solar eclipse. So, in conclusion, what lies ahead? Signs are useful if you're heading somewhere. Once you arrive, the signs are pretty much forgotten. But along the way, they help if they are heeded and understood. If they're vague, they're useless. I don't find any of what we've examined here or in any of the previous other three hours to be vague. It's very straightforward. America was founded by God for the purpose of providing a launching pad for freedom, enterprise, creativity, and most of all, for the advancing of the kingdom of God and to be a tool in his hands for the regathering and safe establishing of the nation of Israel. I trust no one hearing this thinks that I mean by that statement that 
everything America does or did is therefore ordained by God. Unless you believe in a puppeteer, total control kind of God, which the Bible and history does not affirm, then you know, as I do, that God's ordaining of a nation for a specific purpose does not affirm that nation in everything. For instance, it says of Babylon in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 15, I am extremely angry with the nations that dwell at ease and security. For I was only a little angry with my people, but the nations inflicted harm on them far beyond my intentions. Or Isaiah 47, 6, I was angry with my people and delivered them into your hand, Babylon, but you showed them no mercy. This reveals a freedom of will on the human level that is swimming around inside of a sovereign, divinely ordained event or events. The divine event is unalterable, but the human activity within it has options. To understand this reality, for instance, look at Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, where God says, If a person in need comes under the power of a stronger, and they are being mistreated by the stronger, the scripture says, Then, if the weak one cries out to me, I will surely hear them, and I will kill their oppressor. The principle I hope we see from this verse is that in the midst of what seems like concrete, unchangeable circumstances of evil, if in the midst of that evil we cry out to God, He will hear and act for righteousness. And don't start thinking of all the examples you might come up with of where that seems to not be true. You don't see the whole picture. And I can promise you, if God says he always hears and always acts on behalf of those who have been mistreated, then you can rest assured that every evil act, and there are many taking place today, every evil act will never go unpunished. We are facing judgment as a nation as sure as the rising sun. It is inevitable and at the door. But as we have stated often before, judgment does not mean wrath necessarily. It means, in its essential root, to put right that which is wrong. If a nation reaches a point of such vileness that the only means of putting things right, judgment, is wrath, well then at that point judgment and wrath are the same. But if God would be willing to spare all of Sodom for the sake of ten righteous, it's scripturally safe to say that there are more than ten righteous crying out to him in America and in the other Western nations which are in grave danger. God is not mocked, but he's also not mean. He longs to find any reason possible to extend grace, hold back destruction, and manifest life over death. It is reasonable to read from the remainder of Isaiah chapter 9 what followed in Israel after they had made their arrogant, defiant declaration. Since we have done the exact same thing and can expect the ongoing judgment to be similar, if not exactly parallel, then we should consider what Isaiah chapter 9 verse 11 and following has to say that the nation of Israel suffered, knowing that we're heading in the same direction. First, it lists division of the nation. We are technically right now nearly split 50-50 on almost every subject in America. There was a loss of wise adult 
leadership replaced by a circus of fools. Next, there was a disintegration of civilized life throughout the nation. Next, a complete disarray of family relationships, resulting in the next one violent discord in the streets. A rage and irrationality stirred into riots and unquenchably unreasonable lawlessness, resulting finally in darkness and burning. So says Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 24, there is a description of this judgment. In verse 5 of that chapter, in the normal translations, says that the severe judgment came because, quote, the land was defiled under the weight of its inhabitants because they'd broken God's laws, changed his ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant. Sadly, that translation and that understanding communicates very little to most of us, except that it seems to say, well, they broke God's law, so God was angry, and it caused trouble. That's not what this verse is saying. The meaning of the Hebrew is far more dramatic and in-depth than a mere crossing of a line, which is what transgression literally means in English. To amplify this properly, it might go something like this, based on Leviticus 18, for cross-reference, if you'd like to look. The whole land has been defiled and is poisoned by the weight of continuous practicing of evil, for they have not only broken God's law, they have sought to twist and deform it and mangle it in order to suit their own sinful desires to the point of exchanging what is clearly stated and replacing it with what they want it to say. For they demand that God's revelation of himself and of his purpose for man, which he expressed in his everlasting covenantal love, be completely overthrown and replaced with their own laws. I hope you can see the obvious relevance and striking clarity of where we are and the weight of our sins crushing and poisoning the very earth, especially with reference to the current demand that marriage be redefined according to the lusts of this present age. Then there is the shedding of innocent blood, it says in Numbers chapter 35, verse 33, Bloodshed pollutes the land. No cleansing of the land from the pollution of bloodshed can be made except by the shedding of the blood of those who shed it. The judgment on Israel in Isaiah 9 was along with other sins due to the murder of thousands of their own children. We have now killed over 55 million of ours. Think of what that means in the light of the verse from Numbers 35 that we just read. So where's the hope? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says, This foundation stands sure, that the Lord knows those who are his, and let those who are his depart from iniquity. Revelation 18, 4, Come out of her, my people, so that you be not a partaker of her sins and receive none of her plagues. Nahum 1, 7 says, The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who trust in him. 
I try to keep reminding myself and all of us that the shaking, the judgment, whatever form it takes, is for the ultimate purpose of confronting evil, awakening righteousness, and eventually putting right all that is wrong. If we are more concerned with peace and safety than with the overthrow of evil, our priorities are simply wrong. We need to ask God to love what He loves and hate what He hates, so our priorities get adjusted, so that perfect love casts out all fear, and we lose the vulnerability that such fear causes us to have, so that we then become lights that shine in the darkness. Stop this message right now and ask the Lord for that miracle of grace to be worked in your own heart so that you don't have priorities that are upside down. We must cry out for God's kingdom to come in whatever form it takes. And if judgment is a prerequisite for that, then we must embrace it. How can we rest and desire peace and safety? When right now, at this very moment, our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering desperately, more than at any time since the fall of Rome. How can we rest when sexual insanity is taking over the entire Western culture and the blood of murdered children cries out from the ground? How can we be satisfied to watch our favorite TV shows or ball games when the name of the Lord is blasphemed regularly and in levels of putrid filth unparalleled in history. I'm crying out for whatever shaking it will take to divide the light from the dark, to expose evil and awaken righteousness. I know well that that may mean more shaking for me personally, but so be it. God is for me. He's not against me. Whatever he has to correct in me is for my good. The worst thing that could possibly be is that I be left to my own fleshly devices with no correction. There comes a level of stupidity and vulgarity in seared consciences, which is hopelessly stuck in its own poison without the jolt of reality that comes from a divinely allowed invasion of danger. Such people who are in that level of debauchery are damned already. We're absolutely there without any doubt. So judgment for us is a mercy, and without it, there will be no mercy, but a certain looking for of coming wrath. Now, I suppose it depends on your end-time point of view how to interpret what I'm about to share. For those who believe the church will be taken up and out any moment, this will probably be irrelevant. But for those who may hold to a different point of view about when the church will go up, it's worth considering. Actually, I consider that it's worth considering no matter what your point of view is or I wouldn't say it. America, with all of its faults, is the only vanguard for freedom left in the world. The collapse of America down to the level of a third world nation, something that is possible, and if you don't believe that it is possible, that's a whole other issue we don't have time to address here. But such a debacle of America would leave the world up for grabs by evil elements all around the world. If that scenario happened, chaos would reign until the cry for peace and safety would make way for the rising of a one-world government of Antichrist proportions. There may be a full-scale civil war in America, or at least a large minority of patriot-minded God-fearers 
who would possibly unite for one last stand. We must remember that in the midst of all these possible scenarios, these and many others you might name, it's the kingdom of God that will be continually manifesting and coming on the earth through the shattering of the outer shell of this present system, giving birth to the new life to come, culminating in the return of the king. We may not be that far gone yet, only God knows. In spite of how clearly current events seem to point to a worst-case scenario, God's in charge of how fast and how far he allows evil to move, so the present coming judgment can still be truly remedial. In closing, I want to share with you some aspects of remedial, corrective, redemptive judgment so that we will not only not fear it, but even cry out for it. Number one, such a judgment, I believe, would reaffirm the vision of God's sovereignty and holiness, something desperately needed in the church. Number two, it would humble America's arrogance. Number three, it would reawaken our dependence on him alone, hopefully resulting in a massive cry out to him for mercy. Number four, it would expose the worship of the material and awaken the true value of things. Number five, it would level imbalances and redistribute wealth God's way. Number six, it would possibly destroy many idols in many forms. Each one of these would require an hour's study just on their own. Number seven, it would topple many evil systems and expose many crooked dealings in high places as well as locally. Number eight, it would force relationships into interdependence, which could contribute to a renewal and resurrection of the family and the family altar. In closing, I want to mention something that may require an entire study of its own, but the last item that I believe will be manifested in the coming judgment is that there will be a rising anointing on the body of Christ in power and discernment and spiritual warfare as a counter to what I see happening right now as, a, as an invasion of the demonic in ways that we have never seen before in America, ways that were often manifested in third world countries, Haiti, uh, Africa, various other parts of the world where the powers of darkness were in ascendancy because the church was not. Now that the church is not in ascendancy and uh, the leaders of the country uh, have arrogantly proclaimed that we are no longer a Christian nation, we are not God's nation, something Obama is very fond of restating. There has been a manifest increase in levels of demonic evil that are so horrible that I would not want to tell you some of them lest I put into your imagination things too terrible for you to have to deal with. I mean, I'm not trying to impress you with 
uh, my superiority in dealing with them. I'm not dealing with them well either. I, I have to get on my face to cry out to God for grace. And repeatedly, I have to ask the Holy Spirit to cleanse and heal my bruised imagination because of the level of manifest demonic evil that's beginning to feel an emboldened courage to show itself in ways that you used to think of only in special effects horror movies. Uh, The horror movie, Evil, has been so embraced in this country on the imaginative corporate level that that corporate welcome of evil is making a portal for the real demonic uh, to to pour through those portals and manifest more and more. As uh, Also, in, in levels of horrible crime, in levels of hatred and violence uh, in the streets and uh, th- things of this nature. The call of the, the Holy Spirit to the church to take our rightful place in standing in the gap, in manifesting the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if I cast out de- devils by the finger of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come to you. So uh, you can expect to see an increase of the anointing and discerning of spirits and manifestations of power in confrontations with what has become a rising and increased manifestation of evil. Uh, those of you who take seriously the call of, of intercession that I have periodically reminded my listeners that that's what we're primarily called to. That's what Nightlight really is about more than any anything else, is to, to gather and empower and strengthen and encourage the intercessors who stand in the gap and make up the hedge and cry out to God for protection and correction and direction for his people in the close of the age, a light that shines in a dark place. For those of you who understand that calling on Nightlighters, then it's it's important for us to begin to focus on crying out to God for the closing of portals where the demonic has poured in racial racial evils, uh, racially motivated evils, and, and the evils on both sides. For heaven's sakes, there's no there's no white evil or black evil. There's human evil, and uh, anybody who knows the Lord knows that. But the, we, we must stand in the gap concerning racial issues. We must stand in the gap concerning the healing of the, the brokenness in sexuality, which begins with the church taking responsibility for our failure and our sins sexually. Before we can successfully stand in the gap and stop the flow of insanity that is being manifested through the homosexual political agenda, we must first go before God and humble ourselves and repent for our own sins and for the sins that gave birth to the rise in homosexual, an increase in homosexual brokenness. I need to do an entire address just on the racial issue, an entire address just on the homosexual issue. I'm working on doing that now. Uh, Sometimes I really wish I had a blog that I I could go to every day and communicate with you what's on my heart. But you know what? That's not what this ministry was called to do. You don't need a blog from Clay. You don't need my opinions. 
You don't need a blow-by-blow description of whatever's passing through my skull at that present moment. Uh, What you need is what I need, a fresh word from God that came on our knees from the Holy Spirit. And by having to wait monthly to, to seek his face about what's supposed to come next, it may be that there, there is a purer word coming, even if it comes slow, slowly, monthly instead of daily. It, maybe it comes more purely. I pray that that's true. But I do, I am looking for ways to communicate a little more often and a little more directly on certain subjects. I'm working with our webmaster uh, uh, to possibly work things out toward that end. But the racial issue, the sexual issue, and then, of course, the international issue, which deals with um, praying for Israel and praying for the suffering body of Christ around the world. Uh, these are all huge subjects. Here I am at the end of an, over, uh, uh, an hour-long message on very heavy subjects. Uh, I should be bringing it to some closure so that we can all breathe a little bit. And instead, I'm stacking up more stuff than we can digest here at the close. So let me try to unstack it a little bit by saying one of the most important things you can do as you continue to engage in this level of spiritual conflict is to remember our first ministry is to the Lord himself, to love him, to minister to him, to wait for him, to sit in his presence, sometimes not praying, just sitting in his presence, loving him and letting him love you. That's the source of our strength. Then from that place, we enter into whatever directions the Lord leads us in prayer. Well, listen, I think uh, we need to cut this off for now. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much overwhelmed by it all. And, uh, I think I need to go do some of what I just uh, exhorted you to do. So, Father, I thank you with all my heart for every man and woman who listens to my voice and for the honor and privilege of being able to speak to them. They are your choice servants and sons and daughters scattered around the world in small, unsung places, many of them with very little fellowship and very little access to uh, the comforts of Christian culture, many of them stationed in outposts where they are the minority, sometimes even the, to some degree, persecuted minority. And so, Father, I pray for everybody who's in the Nightlight audience who is seriously taking this message to heart, that you will strengthen, establish, and settle us so that we are not terrified by anything, but in everything, by supplication and prayer, we lift up holy hands to you, trusting you to manifest your kingdom to us and through us until we see you face to face. Father, we give you praise and glory and honor and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.